This is An American Workplace, a podcast dedicated to rewatching and discussing NBC's beloved mockumentary series, The Office. My name is Chad Hopkins, and joining me, as always, is my good friend and co-host, Katie White. Katie, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm great. How are you, Chad? I am doing okay. I just had a big move uh, from one apartment to another. I'm living on my own this time, at least for a few months. But uh, it's been busy, and this is the first episode of any podcast I've recorded from this new place. Initiation. I love it. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Moving is always a nightmare, so hopefully the worst of it's over. Yeah, we've got all the heavy stuff in. It's just the, the, the small things to go at this point. Well, let's dive right into episode 17. Uh, first things first, a little bit of housekeeping. We wanted to thank... Uh, first things first, a little bit of housekeeping. We wanted to thank a new review. Well, not super new. Uh, we just may not have mentioned it. Thank you so much to GmanKC1 for your nice review. Really appreciate it. Yes, and please continue, everybody out there. If you like the show, consider stopping by iTunes or by your Apple Podcasts app and leaving us a review. It helps us out with visibility And it's just, it makes us feel good as well to know that people are listening and enjoying the show. So thank you once again to G-Man KC. Well, let's dive into The Coup, Season 3, Episode 3. It aired October 5th, 2006, directed by Greg Daniels and written by Paul Lieberstein. To boost productivity and to combat the Monday blues, as Michael calls them, he has instituted Movie Mondays, where they... They, meaning the whole office, watch a 30-minute installment of a movie each week. Well, this particular episode, Jan shows up while they're watching and is livid, understandably. Um, Angela decides to approach Dwight about how he should talk to Jan about possibly taking over the office because Michael is going to get them all fired. So Dwight calls up Jan, meets with her, and tells her his plans for taking over the branch. And afterwards, Jan calls Michael... To tell, him, to, to tell him about Dwight's treachery. And the rest of the day involves Michael trying to ensnare Dwight in his own lies. So a bit of a darker episode for us. We don't have too many um, dark episodes so far in The Office, but this is one of them, as is, I think, our next episode. So this is going to be a dark episode 17. It is, and it's a, a stark character change for Dwight because... Previously, he's really been nothing but loyal to Michael. I mean, he even went so far as to illegally share his urine for drug testing uh, just a few episodes ago. Um, so it's it's interesting to see Dwight come to a point where he betrays Michael because he thinks it's for the better of the company. Which is something I don't want to dive too far into right now because that's actually my discussion topic for this right. episode. But that is... Um... That is a big change for Dwight, so more on that later. It's Movie Monday is just like a, a super, it's a new low in productivity by Michael because he, he claims it boosts productivity by, uh, I don't know, by just giving them something to look forward to, I guess. But it's hard to claim you're being productive when you're actually taking away from work hours. And when, when Jan says, I don't understand how this is more productive, he says, well, they work faster after. She goes, oh, so magically, yeah, they just work faster. And he says, no, they kind of have to be, to make up for the time they lost while watching the movie, <laughs> uh, which isn't necessarily a boost in productivity. That's just making up for lost time. So it, it's really 
just sort of, like I said, a new low in productivity overall for Michael because he's always been known to sort of distract people during work hours. And this just goes beyond distracting and just takes them away from work altogether. And he seems to be the only one really invested in Movie Monday. Uh, Pam makes popcorn at the beginning of the episode enough for several people and kind of passes around. He wants popcorn and Michael says, me, thank you. And Pam says, anybody else? And no one else takes up on popcorn. So this is really all for Michael. I think everyone else would maybe not rather be doing work, but they know that they need to be doing work. Yeah, it's... I don't know. I, I assumed that Michael was the one who told Pam to pop popcorn, which is why he was the only one who yeah. <laughs> wanted it. And it, I sort of also got the sense this was like beginning of the work day. Like this is probably 9 a.m. Uh, because I do think their work hours are 9 to 5. Um, and yeah. it, it just made sense to me that Michael said, hey, Pam, uh, hey, Pam, how about you pop popcorn for everybody today? And so 9 a.m. she pops six bags of popcorn and Michael is the only one who wants to grab it because it's 9 (laughs) a.m. It's just Michael sort of losing sense of what is necessary for his branch. And to sort of contrast that, you go over to Stanford and I say contrast, but really they're doing the same sort of thing where they're playing Call of Duty together uh, video game for those of you not in the know, although I can't imagine how you wouldn't have at least heard of Call of Duty. Um, but they claim it's a team building exercise. And I've got to say, as somebody who has played Call of Duty before, uh, it's about as team building as movie watching is productivity boosting. Uh, <laughs> so um, is do you think Josh just gets a free pass from Jan because she sees him as more competent than Michael? And also, and also it might be an argument for whether Jan really does feel sort of rejected by Michael because he chose Carol over her in Casino Night. Yeah, I'm wondering. Um, I do think that Jan sees Josh as just generally a more productive person, maybe a smarter person. Um, and as someone myself who has never played Call of Duty but knows about it, I I wouldn't know necessarily by watching somebody play Call of Duty as much as I have, which I have not really. Um, I wouldn't know that it's not a necessarily team building tool. Uh, so maybe that kind of went over Jan's head. I don't know. But movie watching is definitely not a productivity booster. Um, so maybe that kind of slipped by her. I doubt it. I do think she's just maybe letting Josh have have one. Well, it's funny because I, I made that note while watching the episode. What it, like What is Jan's thought on this? And it could be that she's ignorant, but then we get the deleted scene where she shows up at the Stanford branch later in the day, and she walks over to Jim's computer where he has Call of Duty open, presumably to yell at him or to get onto him for playing Call of Duty in his new position as assistant regional manager at Stanford. But instead, she holds down the walking forward button on his keyboard, walks him off the ledge to his death. And she laughs about it. So she's not like oblivious to the game. Yeah, she that's true. It, it's it's strange. It, it, it she's just giving Josh a free pass that she would never ever give Michael. Agreed. And we saw a bit of that uh, in the last couple of episodes, especially in the convention, in the last episode that we saw. Um, that she's taking a bit of a a liking to Josh. Um, we saw a bit of that maybe sexually last episode, but at least definitely 
as a manager, I think she just values Josh's leadership more than she values Michael's. And it's funny because Josh, there's a scene where he pulls Andy and Jim into the conference room. And again, presumably you'd think this might be actually business related, something important, but it's just to say, guys, we're getting slaughtered out there. And Andy blames Jim and uh, he and he and Josh both sort of chastise Jim for his choice of weapon while playing Call of Duty. It, it's absurd <laughs> that this even this meeting happens like they meet in the conference room to discuss Call of Duty strategy um, during work. But I don't know. It, it, it's just amazing what one person can get away with over another for no real reason aside from some sort of perceived competence on Jan's part. Which, wasn't he shooting with a sniper rifle? Which, I don't even play video games, but I know enough about <laughs> shooting games, I guess, to know that that's a very bad move. <laughs> yeah, at least on a smaller map that... Uh, right. He, they mentioned that that smaller map. Um, but anyways, <laughs> Call of Duty, <laughs> it, it, it's just a weird contrast where they're both doing things that are taking away from company time uh but one is perceived as okay and one is perceived as not okay so then we have dwight going behind michael's back to contact jan and that that is a large part of this episode um obviously because the episode is titled the coup and this is the coup of the title yeah so dwight says um well, first, Dwight has that discussion with Angela in the break room and is convinced to go talk to Jan about taking the branch, about taking Michael's job. And he uses the excuse to Michael that he has a dentist appointment. And he kind of over-explains when he comes back. Um, <laughs> it's like when you're telling a lie and to cover up that lie, you give way too much detail in hopes that you'll sound natural. That's what Dwight's doing. He he says the dentist's name. He talks about the kind of filling. He just kind of dug himself into a hole. Of course, by the time that Dwight came back, Michael knew that Dwight was lying. And we get to watch this amazing scene with Steve Carell just being absolutely deadpan. In fact, um, in the commentary, John Krasinski likens him to Jack Nicholson in The Shining. He just has this dead look in his eyes he is dead inside Dwight has killed him <laughs> Michael he just goes in the most roundabout of ways to try and get Dwight to admit what he's done and they just don't work for him he tries the M&M's trick uh, where Dwight has supposedly just come back from a dentist appointment so he says have an M&M and he insists have an M&M and so Dwight puts a few M&M's in his mouth and is chewing and then Michael says oh yeah are you not supposed to eat anything for a couple of hours after getting a crown put in? And Dwight says, oh, well, they had this new quick drying bonding, so not a big deal. And Michael, oh, must have been a good dentist. And it just goes back and forth. Um, and in the end, Michael goes so far as to say, let me look at your teeth. And so he uh, stares into Dwight's mouth and obviously doesn't really know what he's looking for because he doesn't surmise anything from looking at Dwight's mouth. He doesn't know what dental work looks like. And so they just walk away from that situation. It's sort of like, I don't want to call it a wasted scene because it's really funny and it works great for the episode. But in insofar as Michael accomplishing his goal of trapping Dwight in his lies, it doesn't work for him. Um, and it's 
ultimately the convincing Dwight that Jan has called and is promoting Dwight to his position and demoting Michael to Dwight's position. It's that whole scenario that, again, goes on for too long, but eventually does convince Michael to finally turn on Dwight and say, I know what you did. I know you were lying. And it, it's it's the car. It's the car that does yeah, it to him. It's a Sebring. <laughs> um, you're right. Michael's first tactic to get Dwight to own up his lie doesn't work. The whole Eminem thing and the questioning. And so he fakes that Jan has called. Um, and they play along for quite a while. And Dwight immediately switches into this powerful um, persona of manager and he calls Michael Mike and just we'll tell them when I'm ready Mike and um, it's just so superior (laughs) all of a sudden and again Michael's just so angry and so cold to Dwight during all of this until he uh, just snaps after uh, Michael tries to hand Dwight the keys to the Sebring and Dwight says, no, no, thank you. I'm, I'm going to get something a little bit more practical, um, not a convertible since we're in Pennsylvania. And Michael loses it and uh, starts screaming at Dwight. I, you know, uh, I know what you're doing. I know that you went behind my back. And Dwight is just this pathetic, sad, crying man on the on the floor. Just it's really dark. Um, again, in the commentary, I think they call it Shakespearean or like Macbeth or something. It's, it's really, really dark. Yeah. Michael finally gets a chance to go on like a full on hard manager where he's just like, okay, I am in command here and you went behind my back and I have every authority and every intention of firing you right this second. Convince me why I should not fire you right this second. And Dwight just, like, lies prostrate in front of him, <laughs> ruling all over the place. And it's, it's interesting to see how Dwight just completely abandoned his loyalty to Michael in the first place. And even sort of put down Angela, who was the one who convinced him to make this move in the... Uh, who convinced him to make this move. Um, she had said, I thought we could make a difference together. And he says, I will make a difference. Don't be naive. This isn't an us thing, but maybe you can be in charge of the women. Um, but Angela sort of is okay with that, too. She, I, I think she sort of gets turned on a little bit by Dwight being authoritative toward her, which is weird. But that's beside the point. Anyways, at this point, Dwight is completely prone to Michael. And Michael says, let's hug it out. And then B word. <laughs> we don't cuss here. Um, <laughs> uh, but he... He says that's what men do. We we hug it out after we've gotten in a fight and we're friends afterwards. And it, I mean, I, I hug my guy friends. Not a big deal. But after a fight, it's just like I don't hug to the level yeah. that these guys hug. <laughs> where it's like completely uh, intimate with each other and very, very tight hugging. And it's like Michael has given Dwight a second chance in Dwight's eyes. He, he he could have been fired. He could have lost his job, but Michael was merciful. And so real and, deep hug. And yet takes place. Uh, Michael is saying, yeah, you know, we hugged it out. We're fine. But it turns out I was still a little angry. So I'm making him do my laundry for a year. 
And then it pans to Dwight standing on, it's like some boxes or a desk, I think, hanging his head. And he has a sign, a giant sign with the word liar across his chest. <laughs> Which It's almost like the scarlet letter. Yeah, exactly. That was the first thing that came to my mind, too. Um, <laughs> it's like Michael, oh, I, I totally forgave him. We're fine, except we're not. And I'm making him do all this stuff for me and embarrass himself and you know, make himself a dunce in the office because he knows he's wrong. My favorite part about uh, Michael forcing Dwight to stand in the office with a sign around his neck is that afterwards, after we see that shot, it zooms in on Michael at his desk drinking his coffee and he places his mug down and outward faces the words world's best boss because he just (laughs) handled the situation where there was almost a sort of mutiny and nope, I'm the world's best boss. I kept my employee. I punished him and things are going to be okay. World's best boss. There it is. It's just this this perfect little nuanced shot at the very end of the episode of Michael thinking very highly of himself. Back at Stanford to sort of wrap this up, uh, we get a little bit of a glimpse, further glimpse into what seems to be an anger problem with Andy. Um, In that conference room meeting with Josh that I mentioned, Andy says, the game is over. I'm really going to shoot you. He's really pissed off at Jim causing them to lose this match uh, of of Call of Duty. And it's just, wow, that's taking it a little bit far. Like, I I understand there's some comedy in that, but it's just, wow. Okay, Andy, calm down just a little bit. It is a game. This is supposedly team building and you threatening to shoot your teammate in real life is not building your team. Yeah, because it is supposed to be team building and they're on the same team in the game and in the office. So he's, uh, we're seeing more and more of that from Andy. And then Karen, who sits directly behind Jim, uh, previously we'd mentioned how she, she had, she was sort of immune to Jim's charm where, you know, he, he always was the guy who made the funny faces, the (laughs) camera and us as audience members really liked him and all that kind of stuff, she was sort of immune to it. She makes fun of him staring at the camera in those weird ways. But now she almost seems to be developing some sort of crush on him. Uh, You know, while kids who like each other pull on each other's hair or they push each other on the playground, Karen walks up to Jim in the face in Call of Duty and shoots him. (laughs) Um, So uh, she, she shoots him in the face and Jim turns back around and is looking at his computer and we linger on Karen's face and she has a sort of smile on her like, oh, I'm sort of considering this guy in front of me. I'm having a good time with him. Um, it's it's just interesting to see that, hey, she's falling for him a little bit. It's inevitable. Jim Halpert. <laughs> <laughs> but even more interesting is that he's falling for her a little bit, too, maybe. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, and I wanted to mention that a little bit as well, like separation from Pam, I think, obviously is necessary for Jim, uh, which is why he moved to Stanford at all. Um, But I'm wondering if he at this point is actually considering, you know, dating again for real. I know when he was dating Katie in Scranton, it was sort of a distraction. We decided who knows if that's actually true, but we kind of think it's a it was a distraction of someone that he got along with fine. And, you know, but it's not a serious relationship. I'm wondering if now that Jim is physically separated from Pam, does not see her anymore, if he would be considering a an actual 
romantic relationship rather than just a distraction from Pam. It is a little bit early to tell, I think. We've only known Karen for, what, three episodes at this point? And the only thing that sort of gives credence or credibility, I think, to the fact that Jim might be falling as well is that ending moment where at the end of the day, Jim is walking out and he turns around and he throws an imaginary grenade at Karen's desk. Uh, That was something that she was making fun of him for using earlier. He was using a smoke grenade as a weapon. But anyways, he throws it at her and she imitates it exploding by tossing paper clips in the air. And it's a very Jim and Pam kind of moment where that is definitely something that Jim would have done to Pam. And she would have played along in the same way, but it's happening with Jim and Karen now. And it's definitely not something that Jim and Katie ever would have done. Uh, they, they were too conflicting in their personalities and their interests. So I think that scene, that little moment with the, the fake grenade lends uh, to the possibility that Jim is also feeling something. And even just in the style of that little scene... It's quiet. It seems to be just the two of them in the office, I think. Maybe a couple of the people, but it's a pretty isolated scene. Um, I, I had the exact same thought, that that seems like Jim and Pam. Uh, I could see that happening exactly that same way in Scranton with the two of them. So just the style of the shot lends itself to sort of a more romantic scene, at least for the office, as, as romantic as the office gets. Um, so we'll see. Now, back in Scranton, speaking of Pam, a little side story here is that Pam, who was newly single, keeping in mind that her fiancé works downstairs, uh, is sort of trying to branch out a little bit. She went on a date not too long ago with that, uh, with, with that cartoonist from the local paper, wearing her work clothes, her everyday clothes, but she um, decided that it's time for her to have some, some new clothes, some dress-up clothes, some after work clothes. And Kelly, of course, is the most excited person in the office for Pam's new wardrobe. So Pam has some clothes shipped to the office, and Kelly sees this and insists that Pam tries them on right there and then. Um, and in fact, fashion holds a show. fashion yeah. show, fashion show at lunch. <laughs> <laughs> Which is one of my favorite lines from this episode. Um, so Pam does, and she has a nice new outfit, this pretty red maroon shirt um which i don't think pam would ever have the capability of dressing immodestly ever um but for her this is a more evening look you know it's 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 a lower cut shirt she feels very pretty in it and the rest of the office really takes notice and pam is a very shy person and I think all of that attention was just way too much and the fact that some of the men of the office would come up and just stand at her desk and gawk and say wow and look at you and she just regretted all of that yeah there's that scene where Creed just comes up and sort of stares at her and she says can I help you Creed he says nah just looking (laughs) and she says please go back to your desk and he says in a minute and he just he's staring at her. And that's the moment where she, she pulls her sweater back on. And the next time we see her, she's back in her normal plain clothes. And that's a good uh, descriptor for Pam as far as her looks go. A lot of the time is plain. And that's not an insult at all. It's just that's sort of the appeal of Pam, I think, in a lot of ways. is She is just a sort of girl next door kind of personality. Um, very plain Jane 
I mean, nothing extravagant or overly sexy, uh, attractive. And that's her, that she's very conservative in her outfits. And so this is a departure and it does invite looks from Creed. And even in the deleted scene, there's a moment where Kevin comes up and says, uh, or hands her some papers to copy or to uh, fax. And he just says, nice looking down her shirt. And so she takes a binder clip and she <laughs> clips uh, the front of her shirt together to cover up some of her cleavage. It's also worth noting that when they're in the break room, um, when she's having her fashion show at lunch, Roy is up there and Kelly calls Roy out for having three sodas that day. And that's presumably because he wants to have an excuse to come upstairs and see Pam. And he compliments Pam on her outfit and says that she looks really nice and um i just thought it was kind of fun that kelly called him out on it because he has been making quite the effort after they broke up to kind of win her back yeah he has a talking head where he says yeah i never used to tell her she was pretty or she looked nice unless she asked or oh there was that one time at senior prom when I told her she looked nice. Um, and so he he's really trying to show Pam that he appreciates her. Uh, he has been so far in season three, and that continues this episode, and multiple soda trips to do so. If that's what it takes, that's what he's going to do. So Roy is trying now, which is more than he ever did in their several years of engagement. Not a whole lot else to say for me as far as this episode goes um, until the commentary, but I did want to mention that uh, it's so worth noting that Dwight creepily knows where Jan likes to shop for clothes. <laughs> um, why he would know that, I have no idea. But And it freaks Jan out, too. But eventually she just gives in and uh, accepts that, you know what? Maybe I'll take his advice and go to the Liz Claiborne outlet or whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> he, it, it's funny because uh, the first time he mentions it, it, it's when he's calling to arrange the coup. And he says, there's a Liz Claiborne outlet at Exit 40. Go there, shop until I can meet you. She says, why do you know that? Well, it's part of my job. No, it's not, Dwight. It's officially not, she says. And he says, noted. <laughs> and then later when they meet at the diner that is nearby, he tells her about the Ann Taylor outlet where she likes their earrings. And that, again, that's part of his job. So he he knows where she likes her earrings. And she, she initially gives this look like, do I want to give credibility to Dwight knowing so much about me. She debates for a second and she says, where? <laughs> she, she'd rather know <laughs> where the new outlet is than to question Dwight on his knowledge of her uh, clothing. Uh, one of my favorite Michael funny moments was when Jan calls him after the meeting with Dwight and he says, "What was Dwight thinking that that he could that he could turn Jan against me? She's my ex lover ish." <laughs> <laughs> and then he has this jungle analogy where he says, "Business is like a jungle, where he is the tiger, and Dwight is the monkey that stabs the tiger in the back." And he says, "Does the tiger fire the monkey, or does the tiger transfer the monkey to another branch?" Goes ah. Pun. <laughs> That's the only part of this analogy to the jungle that works is branch. Um, it, it's it's just weird that he, why, why does he feel the need to uh, tie himself to a tiger and Dwight to a monkey? It's it doesn't make sense until he gets to the word branch and then he thinks he's really clever. 
which I'm pretty sure was an accident on his part. I don't think he even meant to make a clever uh, tie there, but he did. Yeah. We do have an additional tally to our assistant to the regional manager uh, tally. I think this, I think, somebody correct me out there if I'm wrong. I think this is number eight. I searched through my notes, and so the last one I found was seven. Uh, But when Michael promotes Dwight to acting manager of Dunder Mifflin Scranton branch, and he says, I am now assistant regional manager. Dwight corrects him and says, assistant to the regional manager. And thanks for staying on, Michael. I really appreciate it. (laughs) It's our first... (laughs) It's our first assistant to the regional manager official joke. There have been a couple of vague uh, play arounds those words, but th- it was never explicitly an expli- uh, uh, an assistant to the regional manager joke until this one since the fight way back in like early season two. So I was glad to finally check another one onto the tally list. So there was a commentary for this episode, as I mentioned. Um, Several people on, including John Krasinski and Rashida Jones, who plays Karen Filippelli in in, uh, Stamford. Fun note that the rest of the cast and crew presumably was recording from L.A. um, And John Krasinski and Rashida Jones were recording from New York. So long distance commentary. We're used to that. (laughs) Yeah. um, We got to reveal that Angela Kinsey... Uh, auditioned for Varsity Blues, just a quick aside, because that was the movie that they were watching for Movie Monday at the Scranton branch. Greg Daniels has a friend named Jim Halpert, who he presumably named John Krasinski's character after, and then John got to meet the real Jim Halpert. So that's a fun little uh, real-life namesake, I guess. I've always wondered how the writers come up with names for characters uh and i guess in this case he pulled an actual friend from real life yeah and they said karen filippelli was named after uh one of the producers or somebody else on the crew of the show Uh, i think her name was rachel filippelli if i remember correctly uh so that was the namesake for karen's last name then we also found out that the writers of the show actually play Call of Duty in their offices or in their writing room, which is how they got the inspiration for the Stanford branch using it as team building. So I guess in some respects, it could be an actual legitimate team building exercise. And yes, there is teamwork in some shooter video games like that. Uh, but I don't think the way they were using it in the episode was really uh, promoting a team uh, standpoint, especially when you were playing people in the team against each other. But anyways, uh, that was the inspiration for that plot point. Rain Wilson talks about how Paul Lieberstein, who wrote this episode, has a very particular and peculiar writing style, especially in the dialogue between characters. Um, I hadn't noticed that, but now that we know that the cast and crew think this, I'll have to keep an eye out for that. Anytime that there's a Paul episode, um, just keeping an eye on the writing. Yeah, same here. I don't know if I'd ever recognize any sort of particular writing style from him. Um, I started trying to pay a little bit of attention after that was mentioned in the commentary, but uh, that I think that's something I'll have to notice more over time now that I'm paying more attention to things like who wrote each episode, especially since they use uh, the same people pretty often. Paul Lieberstein also showed Rain Wilson how he wanted to do the sprint in the parking lot uh, when Dwight is debating on whether to call Jan or not. 
Uh, there's this moment where he just like full on sprints <laughs> down the, the center of the lot. And he does it in such a peculiar way where he like leans his head back and uh, is just, it's just a funny look to the sprint. And Paul Lieberstein, I guess, demonstrated it for him or told him exactly specifically how he wanted him to do it, which I thought was just a fun uh, little note. The Stamford people, the Stamford office uh, filmed on different days than the Scranton office. So there were several episodes where the where half the cast didn't get to see each other, um, which I'm sure is odd when until recently we've just been in one office doing one thing where generally you're going to be seeing a lot of the same people every day. So now we're in two locations for the foreseeable future. Um, that's going to be interesting for the cast at this point. Another fun note was uh, Steve Carell was told by Greg Daniels to approach the character of Michael as if when he was talking to the camera, he acted like he was talking to Jennifer Aniston. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I guess just kind of, I'm not even sure what that would be. Um, Kind of nervous and I don't know. I mean, I guess that that would be different for every person, but... Uh, Steve took that note and ran with it. I just thought that was a really funny way to describe a character. Yeah, I, I'm trying to picture what that would mean as well. This would have been on the tail end of Friends, um, where Jennifer Aniston first like really became popular. And I guess for Michael, it would be like talking, well, obviously talking to a beautiful woman, but Michael hams it up in front of the camera a lot. And I guess that's where a lot of that comes from. Let's go on to deleted scenes. So just a a couple of deleted scenes. Um, I thought it was interesting that Angela was protesting Michael's movie Monday by going to the break room and sewing instead, as if that's any better. Uh, Go figure. (laughs) After Jan leaves Michael's office uh, when she first comes in that day, Dwight attempts to give Michael advice on um, cutting costs in the office by suggesting that he charge Creed rent for the office and that he fire Meredith. Yeah, and Creed reveals that he sleeps at the branch four nights a week. (laughs) And in Toronto, (laughs) the other three, apparently uh, he says the people in Toronto don't know about this job and it's a welfare state. So it's like he wants us to keep it on the down low that he's... uh, he actually has a job in Canton, uh, that he actually has a job and wants to stay at the staying at Toronto. I don't know. It was weird, uh, but it's just funny that Creed sleeps at the branch and we see a a glimpse of him like in his boxers and a a white shirt, brushing his teeth and spitting into his trash can. After Jan leaves, Michael also, after Dwight has tried to give him his advice, Michael tries to get everybody back into the conference room to continue watching the movie. And everybody's like looking back and forth at each other. I think Jan said that we're not supposed to do that. And Michael is just trying to convince them still. It's just really bad management and really bad. I don't know. Um, He's not thinking through things clearly and not thinking through what's at stake. Downsizing has literally been a threat for this branch since episode one, since the pilot. And they're getting closer and closer and closer to a decision, it seems, because, uh, I mean, back in Valentine's Day, they had that meeting where Craig's branch might have been closing and then talking at uh, 
the convention, it seemed like they were they were struggling with money a little bit as well and really focusing on trying to get new clients. And here Michael is, even after Janice chastised for him, trying to institute a movie Monday, taking people away from their work days. And then lastly, um, Jim has a quote in a deleted scene where he says, things are a little bit different here in standard. It's not bad. And this is right after he and Karen sort of looked at each other and shared a smile. And the reason I noted that was because it's reminiscent of what he said about Pam at the end of Diversity Day back in season one, uh, where he was trying to get his best client to make a sale all day long and eventually lost the sale to Dwight. And still, at the end of the day, Pam fell asleep on his shoulder in the conference room. And so he said, you know what? Not a bad day. And so this is sort of the same thing, I think, where he spent the whole episode getting slaughtered in Call of Duty. But hey, he shared a smile with Karen. And so maybe things aren't so bad. As far as our discussion topic today, uh, I already kind of gave that one away. But I wanted to talk more about what makes Dwight lose his loyalty to Michael. Up until this point, it seems like his loyalty has lied, yes, with the company, but more so with Michael. And Angela kind of talks him into going behind Michael's back. I wanted to know your thoughts on that. I wonder if part of it is Angela, since they have this relationship going on, if it's safety for her job that sort of convinces him to try and overthrow Michael. Um or whether it simply is power, because once Michael does the fake demotion of himself and fake hiring of uh, or promotion of Dwight, he sort of lets it go to his head, including almost not quite turning against Angela, but making it more about him than about them. And so it, it, it's it's a mix of things, I think. Yeah, I agree. I'm not sure that he has a whole lot of regard for Angela's job, at least at this point, because... You're right, when when he was fake promoted to manager, it was all about him. But I do think that he takes her word to heart. And if she has an issue with how things are being run, and if she says that Dwight can do it better, then Dwight can do it better. He believes that. So I think maybe he just needed the the motivation from Angela. Um, they've been together for quite a while now at this point. Um not publicly, of course, but they have. And I think he values her opinion of him more than more than anything um, as far as this, this move behind Michael's back. I still find it hard to believe that Dwight would kind of betray Michael like this. Um, I think it's a little out of character, given that nothing really happened to Dwight. But... I don't know. I mean, Dwight's a complex guy. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, it seems like it's almost been something that's been in the back of his head the whole time. Because even back in the pilot episode, I think he talks about his his ideas for downsizing, about how um, he could fire half the people. Like that That's something he talks about in the first episode. Um, so this is him getting a chance to maybe enact that. And plus, throughout season two, he was treated pretty poorly by Michael a lot of the time, including in drug testing. When he was forced by Michael to share his urine in order to protect him from possibly failing a drug test. Um, And yes, Michael has always sort of momentarily redeemed himself in Dwight's eyes after moments like that. But still looking back and with 
Angela sort of putting this bug in his ear um, to overthrow Michael, to talk to Jan, to take his job. Maybe it all just sort of accumulated together and he thought, you know what, maybe I could do a good job. I don't know. Yeah, I think we're we're thinking a lot of the same things there, but something just to, to just to think about. Now, going into our next episode, we have Grief Counseling, which aired on October 12th of 2006, was directed by Roger Nygaard and written by Jennifer Salota. In Grief Counseling, Michael learns from Jan that Michael's former boss, Ed Truck, has died. Ed Truck was the manager while Michael was a salesman at Dunder Mifflin Scranton. Michael thinks that the office is uh, is as upset as he is about Ed Truck's death and makes them work through their grief, which may or may not exist, with grief counseling. Meanwhile, in Stamford, Jim has been put in charge of Karen for the day, and Karen is really not happy about it, but they end up having a good time together in search of a bag of hers potato chips. Back in Scranton, Toby reveals that he saw a bird fly into the window that morning, and so... In the theme of grief, they hold a uh, a funeral for the bird in the parking lot. This is really a pretty sad episode in a lot of ways. There's plenty of funny moments to, to balance it, as the office always has. But it's really a lot of Michael sort of dealing with his own mortality and his own loneliness and his own thoughts about, will I be remembered when I die? And what can I do about that? now to sort of protect my memory uh it's it's deep stuff and it's just depressing to see how affected he is by the boss of by the death of his boss um but it's not so much because he misses his boss it's because he was a past regional manager for dunder mifflin and his death was so sudden and largely he sees that the way Ed is likely to be remembered is the way he will likely be remembered after he's eventually gone. And to me, it seemed like at first Michael wasn't really affected. He was informing his employees, hey, just so you know, um, just so you know, Ed Truck has died. And then Kelly, being Kelly, felt really, really sad for him and uh, empathized for him. So Michael sort of to me, it seemed like at first he just wanted attention. Like, oh, I should feel sad. Oh, I am sad. And uh, just kind of to get the office to feel bad for him. And then I think it did actually affect him as he let it. Uh, I think you're right. He realized that he will be Ed Truck one day. He is a general manager of, of Dunder Mifflin and he is going to die. And at some point, the next manager will be telling their employees that Michael Scott died. And I think he, it, it messes with him, his own mortality. It, at first, the news of Ed Truck being dead is like a level of responsibility for him. And this is played up, especially in the deleted scenes where he, he confirms with Jan, I'm the first person in the office to know. Oh, good. Then it is down to me to share this information with my employees. And I am therefore important because I am passing on this important information about their former boss to my employees. And that, that's just sort of his mindset at the start. But it does develop when he sees that nobody cares that he has this information for them, that he 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 worries that nobody will remember or care that he's gone. And one day he'll be as alone in death as he sort of sees himself as alone as he is in life. And that does project onto the bird that flew into the downstairs window and died. Um, and he decides to hold a funeral service for the bird. 
he he just a, a funny aside he says that toby killed it even though toby just saw it happen <laughs> um but it it's it's sad uh, i mean that's really just the, the best way to put it is it's sad to see michael in such a, a sort of existent existential state uh where he is holding a funeral for a bird that he didn't even see alive ever <laughs> So in Stamford, they're having a meeting at the beginning of the day, just kind of going over their tasks for the day and what they have accomplished. And Karen has a small task that she hasn't done. And Josh is a little annoyed with her at that. So he says, Jim, will you make sure that that happens? And he says, yeah, absolutely. And Karen is so peeved that Jim, who we established she might have a little crush on, is now in charge of her work that day. And... Jim kind of senses this, and I think being a good guy and wanting to keep the peace says, you know what, we are not going to get anything done until we find these potato chips that Karen was upset weren't in the vetting machine and she was trying to get them. So he says, our priority is to find these potato chips. And they spend a whole day, it seems like, um, calling distributors in Quebec. They're calling, you know, the vending machine like company they're they're hunting down these chips and uh leave it to jim to turn a situation like that upside down i thought that was a nice uh nice little bond for them and i think this is further confirmation that he's certainly fallen for her because this is totally something he would have done for pam 100 percent. and it it's nice to see him moving on it's also sad for us fans who really liked the Jim and Pam uh Jim and Pam pairing uh but it's it's nice that he's feeling a little bit more comfortable with himself and with moving on and with potentially dating other people and this is a glimpse into one him being a good guy and two into him finally moving on and maybe pursuing a new relationship with somebody and speaking of Pam um, she does something so be- unbelievably nice for Michael in this episode. Um, it warmed my heart because she's a good person as well. She, uh, she sees that Michael is having this awful day and he's projecting his own insecurities. And so she shows him that she cares by showing that she cares about the bird more accurately about him. But she makes this nice burial box for this dead bird that she really doesn't care about, but she makes it. It looks pretty. It's very artsy, craftsy, uh, very Pam is a way to put it. And they go out to the parking lot to hold this funeral where they put it in the box and they light it on fire. And she has this beautiful speech about how maybe they didn't know the bird so well. They did know a few things about it. It was a local bird. It was... uh, uh, maybe just trying to get inside to share a song with them and Dwight being a, a uh, killjoy <laughs> tries to say it's not a songbird, but that's not important. This whole time Pam is reading the speech, she's looking at Michael um, because she's directing these words to him. She's saying, listen, even though this bird may not have had other birds with it when it died, there are plenty of other birds out there that did care about it and will miss it. And it, it's just a nice moment where she's doing everything she can to make Michael feel better about himself. And on the flip side, we see a different side of Pam as well in this episode. Uh, since Jim is gone, there's no resident 
prankster, so she kind of takes over that role a little bit when they're doing their grief counseling. Um, Michael insists that they all go around and talk about some horrible death that has affected them and their family, which, in my opinion, is not the most effective grief grief counseling. But hey, no. uh, they they uh, are super hesitant until Pam starts the um, kind of joke behind Michael's back about movie deaths. So she starts hers with Million Dollar Baby. Um, Ryan does Mufasa from The Lion King. And Kevin kind of ruins it with Weekend at Bernie's. And Michael eventually catches <laughs> on. But she starts this little game under Michael's nose. It's funny that it's Weekend at Bernie's that triggers Michael in on the joke rather than the Lion King. And I think it says a lot about him that this like silly farcical comedy weekend at Bernie's was the one that, that let him in on the joke. I don't know (laughs) because I think, I mean, Ryan straight up says Mufasa where else outside of the Lion King. Have you heard Mufasa? Uh, I think it's his cousin or something, his cousin Mufasa (laughs) and they were on a safari. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And trampled by wildebeest. He doesn't even change it. It, uh, He says, (laughs) We were all we all took it really hard, all of us in the audience of that. (laughs) (laughs) Other funny things that happened in this episode, Michael is very emotional about Ed Truck's head, and he's trying to make a big deal out of everything. And at one point he says his kappa is detated from his head. (laughs) (laughs) That is great. And then uh when when Roy shows up with fake car troubles to get Pam out of the conference room meeting, uh she's grateful. She goes out with him. They talk a little bit. She comes back and finds that Michael and the rest of them have all waited on her to get back before starting. So she didn't miss a thing. It's just funny. No telling how long she was gone. It was probably only like 10, 15 minutes maybe. But still, they all waited and just sat in silence, it appears, uh, until Pam got back. We see a clip of Michael not understanding why we have a holiday for Martin Luther King Jr. when he didn't even work at Dunder Mifflin. Um, and one of my favorite funny moments of this episode, as there, not that there aren't funny moments, but as we said, it is a darker episode, is the cold open, um, the stairs down to the warehouse or the fake stairs down to the warehouse (laughs) where Michael is kind of miming that he's going down some stairs. He places some, um, boxes of paper as sort of a, a wall and he pretends to walk down the stairs. And so Pam messes with him and, um says, hey, will you go down to the warehouse and get me uh, some some coffee? And Michael says, oh, well, there's coffee in the break room, Pam. You can just go get that. And she says, oh, but the coffee in the warehouse is so much better. So he has to go down these imaginary stairs, army crawl to the break room, get coffee in a mug, army crawl back, and re-climb up the imaginary stairs, Um which is exhausting and takes time, I'm sure. And then Pam says, ooh, with cream and sugar. <laughs> and so he has to do it all again. <laughs> yeah, that's a great opening gag. Um, and then one final Michael moment for me is when he says at the end of the episode, grief isn't wrong. There's such a thing as good grief. Just ask Charlie Brown. <laughs> <laughs> Dwight has just a couple of moments I wanted to mention he reveals in the conference room scene that his mother, when his mother was pregnant with him, they found out that she was having twins, but then later they did another ultrasound and discovered Dwight had resorbed the other fetus. And he doesn't regret it now because he believes it made him stronger. He says, I now have the strength of a grown man and a little baby. 
<laughs> which I'm sure is a big help in his day-to-day life. But then but then he makes this this small quote. It's a quick line, but it ties back to Casino Night. He says, "My grandfather was reburied in an old oil drum." Um this is right after he's tried to fit the bird into a soda can. And so his grandfather was reburied and I guess this is when he got the suit that his grandfather was buried in that he wore for casino night. So that was just a a quick tie in. Yeah. Yeah. It's right there. Uh, I don't know why they were, if, 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 I don't know if they dug him up just for the suit or if there was another reason, but Hey, they did it. And he's now in an oil drum apparently. Now let's move on to deleted scenes. What do you got Katie? In Stamford, there's a woman who Jim works with, uh, a co-worker, and she has a baby. And she sees Jim walking by and says, hey, do you want to see a picture of my baby? And she kind of jokes, warning, nudity, because it's a baby picture. Like, it's not super risque when it's a baby. And Jim says, oh, okay, sure. And he <laughs> looks at the picture, and it's a picture of the woman's baby and her husband, who is also naked. In a bathtub. Um, so her warning, I guess, was warranted. Um, and Jim just kind of, oh, oh, that's that's your naked husband. Like, and she's, um, not not to spoil anything, but we will see a little bit more of this woman, and she's always made me laugh really hard. So we'll we'll see a, 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 just a little bit more of her. Yeah, and she caps that scene off by taping that photo to her computer in public. Because why? <laughs> who doesn't want a picture of their naked husband and child uh, on their computer and in a public office? Anyways. <laughs> um, Michael gave Toby a chance at grief counseling, since it's technically part of his job. But Toby doesn't do it the way Michael would. In other words, he doesn't force them to talk about grief for a person that most of them haven't met. And he has this quote where he says, Grief counseling is not about... Are you hungry? Would you like a sandwich? These people are so far gone, you have to stick a food tube down their throats. (laughs) And that really is a glimpse into Michael's mindset for grief counseling in this episode. He wants to force them to feel sad, even though most of them have no reason to. Um, And Michael calls Toby a plague on this company. (laughs) Yeah, he says, I don't think I'm exaggerating too much when I call him a plague on this company. Uh, Just a little bit, Michael. You are exaggerating. Just a a little bit. (laughs) Um, But I think the deleted scene that made me laugh the hardest and I kind of feel bad about it is when Michael is playing with his toy 18 wheeler slash semi truck on his desk and he accidentally pushes (laughs) it off and it falls on the ground and the cab detaches from the trailer (laughs) imitating (laughs) a truck getting decapitated supposedly in his death. And Michael just sort of like sits there like I can't believe that just happens. And I laughed (laughs) way harder than I should have. But it was pretty funny. Especially since he apparently gets decapitated by an 18-wheeler as well. (laughs) Yeah, and his name is Truck. It works on multiple levels. Oh, I didn't even (laughs) think about that one. Oh, Oh, it gets better the more you analyze it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) In the deleted scenes, we also see how opposite from Michael Dwight is in his views on remembering the dead. Uh, He says remembering the dead helps no one. He advises everybody to delete their contact information for Ed Truck, to shred photos of Ed Truck. He says the best way to honor the dead is to figure out what killed them and to stop that thing from killing ever again. 
Uh, so there's there's Dwight's thoughts, uh, anti-remembering people. And there's another deleted scene where Roy shows up earlier in the episode to talk to Pam at reception desk, which is how he knows about the grief counseling and why he tries to get her out of it later. Uh, so there's that little tidbit. But during that break where he takes her outside and they're talking outside of her new car, he says, yeah, uh, my cousin Billy, I think, had twins. And then she says her congratulations, pass it on, all that kind of stuff. And then they just sort of stand there. And it's almost like they're contemplating where they would be now had they gotten married and uh, what kids they might be preparing for if they had gotten married at that point in their lives. Um it's just a, sort of an introspective moment. And there were a couple of glimpses during the episode where Pam maybe lingers after staring at Roy for a moment and smiles, or she's just really appreciative of how he's trying to be appreciative of her for the first time. Um, so maybe there's something building there. Uh, we don't know anything at this point, but it, it's just an interesting deleted scene where uh, they're sort of not not rebuilding their relationship, but they still have something going on between them, whether it's just friendship or not. And at this point, Jim is gone. So she doesn't have that distraction of Jim. Um, so if, you know, I, I bet she can see her relationship with Roy a lot more clearly, or at least pay it more attention now that Jim is gone. Right. And, um, uh, yeah, I'll mention this last one. Um, the last thing for me is when Pam has a talking head talking about how Michael thinks Home Alone is the saddest movie ever. And this is a big glimpse into his character because he says there's nothing funny about a kid being forgotten and left behind by his entire family. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. I, yeah, that, that's, that's Michael's viewpoint on the whole Ed Chuck situation as well as he doesn't want to be forgotten by people after he's gone. Um, that so. sounds like his fundal bundle experience as well. Just, yeah, a little bit. He's just a sad guy sometimes. So, Chad, your discussion topic for episode four, what do you have? I thought it could be a, a fun little one uh, rather than talking about a family member or somebody we've lost. <laughs> I, I'm not interested in going into our own grief counseling right now. Um, but Please, thank you. <laughs> but I was wondering, what is a snack or whatever else? It could be like a, a novelty item or something from a store, like a shirt. I don't know, whatever, uh, whatever it might be that you've gone to great lengths to find. Is there anything like that? Well, I have not gone to great lengths, but um, it's sort of an item that I had once. So it's a it's a Ben and Jerry's flavor of ice cream. I had a uh, a pint of Ben and Jerry's cinnamon buns ice cream, Ooh, and that I have delicious. never. Oh, it was so good, but I cannot <laughs> find it anywhere. It's mysteriously gone. I cannot find it anywhere, but it's apparently still in production. So, in New York, there's these little corner stores that they call bodegas everywhere. I mean, every single corner it seems have has at least one, and it's just sort of your neighborhood deli and they're generally open 24 hours and they all have a cooler of ice cream so i've unfortunately eaten way more ice cream here than i ever planned to um <laughs> but i have not seen this flavor of ice cream anywhere and i had it once and it was my favorite and i can't find it so we'll see <laughs> well i'll keep an eye out down here in texas as well <laughs> have it it's amazing 
Um, now for me, I like coffee a lot. If you didn't know that about me, I know you knew that Katie. Um, I did, but we share that. Yes. And I love Dunkin' Donuts coffee, uh, as far as like to go coffees go. That's my favorite. And so there was once uh, probably about a year ago, maybe a little less, uh, when I'd first moved into my old apartment and I didn't know the location of various Dunkin' Donuts. And so I was using my phone and so I went to the closest one, according to my phone, which happened to be at the local airport. So I had to go inside the airport to get Duncan. Obviously, I wasn't <laughs> going to do that. Then I went to the next closest one, and it closes at like 9 p.m. or something stupid like that. And it was 10 or 11. I like coffee late at night sometimes. And so I decided, okay, well, I'll just go to the one I usually go to. And so it was probably about an hour of driving around in total, maybe even a little bit longer, uh, just to get a cup of coffee from my favorite coffee place. And I did it. And that, that was probably uh, the closest example I can think of where it's late at night. I just want some coffee and I want coffee from a specific place. And so I drove to three of those locations before I got what I want. That's amazing. Um, I remember when we both lived in Lubbock, Texas, which is where we, where, where Chad and I met at school, um, there was no Duncan for most of our time in Lubbock. And then I think in our senior year, maybe. Well, this is what happened, Katie. <laughs> I'm kind of, <laughs> Chad kind of will upset know. about it. <laughs> Dunkin' Donuts did not open in Lubbock until a week before I left Lubbock for good. Oh, I didn't so, know that. Yeah. And now they've got like four of them. Thanks, Lubbock. Yeah, Thank you, Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that is the end of the official 17th episode of An American Workplace. Thanks for bearing with us as we took a break for a week because of my moving schedule. Um, but we're glad to be back. You can contact us on Facebook at facebook.com slash workplacepod or on Twitter at workplacepod. You can rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, and you can email feedback and ideas to workplacepod at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at ktlady623 or at facebook.com slash katie.white. And the best place, as always, to find me is at chadadada on Twitter. That is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. Also, facebook.com slash chad.hopkins. And I do have another podcast that will be coming back later this week as well called Cinescope, which is a movie discussion podcast where we talk about the movies we love and why we love them. You can find that at the website, thecinescopepodcast.com. And as for this show, show notes and contact information can be found at workplacepodcast.com. And that's all for this week. Thank you for joining us to watch one of our favorite shows, The Office, here on episode 17 of An American Workplace. Make sure to join us in episode 18 next week for our discussion on the next two episodes of season three, Initiation and Diwali. Goodbye. Goodbye.